everyone and welcome back to The War Room, which is our interview series as part of the Clone Star Pod podcast. I am your host, Sean Ferrick, and joining me is the man who quite literally built a lot of the ship that is on my chest. It is the production designer of a little film called Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness, a frequent collaborator of a Mr. Abrams. It is the wonderful Scott Chambliss. How are you, sir? Wow, wonderful, I guess. Thanks. How are you? I am very good. I'm very, very excited to be talking to you. Um, But uh, yeah, just the first thing is that, how are you? How are you getting on? How is life treating you? It's great. You know, it's I'm happy to be where I am right now and love the career that I have and I'm grateful for it. So I have no complaints. That's I think that's that's what we can all hope for. We all aspire to. Um, So if you have any tips now would be the time. Thank you very much. Sure, work hard and don't stop. Cool. Okay, so you heard it here, folks. Work hard and don't stop. So, Scott, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Bye. My pleasure. (laughs) Um, No, I'm really excited to have you here because one thing that we have been, we've been super fortunate in some of the people that we've got to speak to, but funnily enough, a lot of the the Star Trek and Star Trek to Star Trek Trek Beyond is something that we have still yet to tap into in terms of like getting to hear, you know, kind of what was the, what was the mood? What was the atmosphere? Like you were there on Star Trek 2009. Like I want to ask you all about it, but also was it scary? I mean, this was new Trek for the first time in how long? Yeah. um, I think it was not quite 10 years at that point because the last feature, if I'm correct, you would know, I think it came out in, 1999 or 2000, something like that. 2002. Uh, And I know because I went with my friend and we both sat there and went, so that just happened. Uh, (laughs) Don't tell Patrick Stewart. That would be heartbreaking. I I loved it. It was wonderful. It was great. And it gave us Tom Hardy. So there we go. But yeah, so... Trek 09, what was... So I I can see, obviously, from, from your you know, your CV that you had worked with J.J. Abrams before. So was it a sort of a, oh, listen, Scott, I've got a project coming up. Do you want to be involved? Or how did how did it come about that you became the production designer of Star Trek 2009? Well, at that point, we had um, we were deep into our collaboration. We'd done two TV shows together and the first Mission Impossible um, or my first Mission Impossible and his two together. Um, and he took me along with him to make the transition from like mid-range episodic television to temple blockbuster movie making. And uh, when Paramount asked him if he'd be interested in rebooting the Trek franchise, um, he was intrigued and he called me up and asked to join, which I was delighted by, of course. And um, we were both a little bit, a little bit concerned about it. Um, and. Primarily, uh, I think because J.J. was a big Star Wars fan, but he had never really connected with the Star Trek material. And at first, that was a little unnerving to him until he realized, wait a minute, that's probably my way in, actually, is to come at it from my creative storytelling point of view and see how I can revitalize it. Um, And I was excited to join him on that also a little concerned because up until that point i'd never really paid much attention to science fiction as a genre 
let alone, you know, been a Trek fan or anything like that. Um, and I was also concerned at that point in his creative life, I was afraid that he was going to want to get all badass on it and turn it into something that was, you know, dark and muscular. And he, he proved what a king of tension he was on the Mission Impossible movie. I thought, you know, Child of Man had come out, Children of Men had come out fairly recently. I just had in the back of my mind, oh God, please don't go down that path. And I, I didn't have any reason other than um, thinking that throwing a post-apocalyptic kind of um, dark view of the world on top of Star Trek might make him look or feel badass, but it, I didn't think it was appropriate for the material itself. Um, and fortunately, our very first creative conversation, he said what was most important to him was um, to go back to the original canon, the first series on television, and um, use Roddenberry's intentions for that show as the foundation of our first movie. And he wanted to be really clear that he had no interest in making fun of the first show or camping it up or anything like that. He wanted to he wanted to build a really strong foundation with really great, strong characters, reintroduce them to the world younger than they were in the series, and um, see where we could get with that. And um, embracing the optimism, embracing the the social consciousness of that first series, and and of course that was that was music to my ears. And we both really quickly uh, felt that all those. Um, thoughts or rules actually would needed to apply to the design of the movie as well. And there was never a conversation about changing um, in a fundamental way the design of the enterprise. We wanted to honor that, pay tribute to it, but freshen it up a little bit along, you know, guidelines that we would come to develop over the creative process. Um, and same with the uh, interior, the bridge in particular. Um, and for me, and I think for him as well, the bridge itself was going to be the challenge because of, you know, iconic television environments, the bridge of Star Trek is high up on that list. And, um, it was by far the hardest thing for us to tackle together. And it was the one that took uh, the most stabs at it to get it to the place that we felt it was going to be okay. If if you had to put a number on it, how many different variations of the bridge until we got the one that was in the film? We had three very different ones. Um, the, the first one, Ryan Church and I worked on together endlessly, and we thought we were being really cool. We were turning it into something that was... Actually, I should back up. The, in, <laughs> in getting to the place where we could start designing and illustrating this these sets for the show, um, it occurred to me that if I was going to take take the material seriously, I wanted to look at what was going on in technology and industrial design in the period that that show came out. And that led me into a few different places to the architecture of Aero Saarinen. He's um, He was big future thinking architect at that point. Um, and also the industrial and uh, fashion design of Pierre Cardin, 
who was doing crazy great things in not just clothing, which everybody remembers him for, but furniture and housewares. And he did a, a few prototypical, um, just little experiments into vehicle design that not many people have seen. And there was um, this crazy experimental vehicle designer named Kolani, who was doing massively beautiful and um, relatable work that felt like that was a launch pad for what we could do uh, with the movie as a whole, but also with the enterprise in particular. So um, with those things in mind, our first stab at the bridge uh, felt like um, the view screen was like an old Cinerama movie screen, big wide aspect. And we had, um, we were gonna mess with the layout of where all the different workstations and the captain's chairs were and you know, started doing all of these things, still keeping a sense of what the elements were, but kind of mixing them up. And we did, I would say a dozen or maybe 20 different passes along those lines. It just kept feeling like a, a nightclub lounge. And right. we weren't that <laughs> we weren't that happy with it. It was fun to do, but it was like I don't think we have the essence right here. And JJ looked at it and went, Yeah, groovy, no. Groovy. Go back. <laughs> okay, what do you want? Get it more like the bridge. And so we would do a few sketches and go like this much and go, no, further. And he just kept pushing us to go back further, further to the show to the point that he pushed us too far. And we looked at where we had landed with this version number two that was so very much like what the original show was. But we were all unhappy with that too. But looking at the two, I, I felt I knew what the next step would be. And I tried to explain it to him without having any drawings yet. It was like, I don't get what you're saying, but I trust you. Go for it and show me show me when you get there. And um, Ryan and I got together and had conversations and started playing with things. And we kind of took the our favorite parts of the Lounge Act version and took the substantial footprint of what the original TV show was, changed the nature of the space. It went from being, you know, essentially a circle on the TV show to a big fat oval. We changed the aspect ratio of the view screen a little, not as much, and applied all the um, conceptual design uh, references and ideas into what we redesigned the workstations, the consoles, the chairs, all of that into being, and also all the lighting, mm. the screens, the displays, all of that stuff. Um, all of that came in that third pass. And so, very excitedly, I had um, some illustrations from Ryan. I had some drawings from our set designers of the ground plan. Had a um, paper model of the whole thing, um, mm. very detailed for JJ to come in and look at it. We were all very excited. The whole art department was like, this is it, this is it. This is the one. He comes in, he looks at everything, he's looking around and he goes, I still can't see it. And it's just, it's it's my fault though because I see how excited you all are. And Scott, you think this is gonna work, right? And I was like, yeah, I think, I think this is the one. You said, okay, I uh, can't wait to see it. Hope you're right, go for it. And we did, and there were a few, you know, 
show and tell situations to go for him and for our producers and the DP and all that. We set up a mock-up of it, very bare bones on one of the stages so he could see the actual physical space and walk on it to a certain degree. Um, and that was reassuring to everybody and, and we went for it. And then who was it? Sarah Vowell, and when the thing came out, right? This is my favorite thing. Sarah Vowell is one of my favorite, was one of my favorite writers in that period. Do you know who she is? Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with the name, no. She's kind of esoteric um, in, in literature. She's She writes really odd, wonderful pieces that are social commentary and history and great humor all wrapped into whatever topic she's talking about. And she was a constant writer. I think she was in the New, York, New Yorker magazine and she had a, an editorial piece in the New York Times where she was talking about JJ and Star Trek. And she she's the first one who said, oh yeah, the new bridge looks like an Apple store. <laughs> like, you coined that, did she? You are perhaps a little correct. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, th well, that I have definitely yes, I have definitely heard um, the the Apple Store uh, comparisons, and I mean I see it. I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you. I see it, but I think the thing that struck a lot of us. I mean, I remember sitting there in the cinema that first day. Um, I didn't realize how much I really dug the lighting. I liked how bright it was and how much we could see everything because particularly in the previous couple of films um now it's not as dark as it as it has gone since as well but you could we went from you know the that enterprise D that was uh, you know completely brightly lit uh, to the enterprise E which was your kind of more standard movie set you know things were that little bit darker it was that little bit you know, things were, you know, they were defined by their shadows. And then suddenly we were sitting there and we needed shades in the cinema and it was brilliant. Um, and it really, that in an aesthetic way, I know it doesn't, it's not like it's a carbon copy of the original set by any means, but it was like, oh, I see they're going for bright. They're going for upbeat here. And that really comes across in the look and design and feel of the bridge. That's nice. How did you feel about all the bulbs that were pointing right in the camera and creating the lens flares? Did that irritate you? It actually didn't, right? And that was a funny one because I know it's become something of a of a running joke, like count the lens flares. I think I think there is actually a drinking game going, take a shot every time there's a lens flare. Um, which I, I just I, I haven't been brave enough to play it. But yeah, I I honestly now, and people might people might think I'm joking, I didn't notice on first watch. Um now I've I've seen the the two films once or twice, but uh, so yes, now of course I can see them. But it's become part of the fun. But honestly, sitting there in the cinema the first time, I can't say it stuck out in such a way that it was just like, why is there so many lens flare? Because it, the the design worked in the way yeah. that it did. Um, and I I know there will be corners of the internet that will be like, never put lights on a, on a set again, and it was like. No, I mean, it just, it, I thought, it was, so obviously that was a very deliberate decision. Um, what was, was there, was there any, what was the conversation that went into, right, I need you to put all these lights on this set. So I wanted to do this in the camera. Was there a, a moment of JJ, you're insane? No, there really wasn't because like with, with any project, this one, it's the evolution of what you wind up seeing on screen 
happens incrementally. So, you know, throughout the design process, the design process of the bridge continued as, as we started shooting. It was um, the DP who came up with the idea of putting literally, I can't remember which instrument it was, but we have these rows of lights that are above the display screens and between some of the upper layers that point literally right into the camera, which are the sources of all the lens flares. Um, and that that was part of the evolution of the DP getting involved, seeing how I built in lighting in within the architecture itself and counting on the light coming from all the display screens to also help light this up. Because just as a general rule, I, I do my best to completely design in the lighting so a DP doesn't have to throw an instrument anywhere. It's like, why would you want to do that? Um, but as he saw all that going on, and he and JJ were having their own conversations about what the shooting style was going to be, they started talking about creating a few lens flares. And he asked, he requested at just the right time, Dan Mendel, great DP. We uh, installed these throughout the set, and it was fun. They did the trick. They certainly created some lens flares, but not enough for JJ. So Dan would literally be standing with a big flashlight industrial in his hand. JJ would cue him when he wanted him to like sweep across the lens because it wasn't happening in the in the set. It's very funny. That is, and I can only imagine, you know, if we, you know, a bird's eye view of that, what that must look like when you've got everyone sitting there, full costume, full makeup, everything, and they're being dead serious and everything. And there's just, you know, kind of, there's Dan just like shining a flashlight in everyone. You know, it's like, so it yeah. reminds me of, did you ever do this where you turn off all the lights and you have a flashlight and you shake it from side to side and it's a cheap homemade strobe of a strobe effect? Yeah, sure. Make me think of that straight away. Sure, except everything was brightly lit, so it was a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the rest of the design, like going through the rest of the ship, because obviously, you know, when you have any Star Trek project, you have those who are there for the speeches, those who are there for the ships, I would be, well, I'm in both camps, but definitely I'm there for the ships. In terms of, because I know you said you were obviously so very close to the original design, but what kind of leeway did you have to design? Like, you know, obviously we've discussed the bridge, but when it comes to the rest of the ship as well, um, and there's a specific question about one set I must ask, but, you know, what, what, where did you kind of start from? Did you start from the Matt Jeffries interior designs or did you say, look, will do the ship in, you know, from the bridge down. It was from the bridge. We had to get the, what the language of the bridge was and that, and plus the exterior of the ship, which are the same language. That became our vocabulary for everything else that was related to the ship itself and also everything Starfleet. So that's, that was the source of our visual vocabulary. Um, the engineering set which I I love all of the different engineering sets and all the different Star Trek. This is practical. This looks like an actual, this looks, I mean, obviously we know that it was filmed in a factory, but like, this looks like, yes, this is what it actually would take to, to keep the ship going. Um, likewise now, what was there ever a, a kind of a, well, we need to do the big vertical warp core thing that they all have, or was it, no, it needs to look like a factory. It needs to look like it works. You know, it started with being another big stage set where we did have the big warp core and um, I can't remember who the illustrator was I was working with on that one. It might have been Ryan again, but I have a feeling it wasn't. We developed um, 
a complete stage full of the engineering section with all of its different walkways, determining which parts were going to be built, which were going to be CG added in. Um, and a couple of things became really clear. Uh, number one, it would be rather limiting to take that approach. It meant that we would only have so much um, real set to work with in what was meant to be big, huge scale dynamic action. And we'd have to cheat it, turn it into partial um, green screen stage work. Or, uh, and we also, it was, the scale of that set wasn't affordable within the budget that we were trying to stay to. Um, and all of us really prefer on that show, uh, working in real environments anyway. Hard thing is, how do you find an engineering section of a spaceship in reality in any sort of venue? And, you know, the, the options were really limited and industrial uh, food manufacturing seemed to be a place that we had to take a peek at. And fortunately for us, um, Budweiser, whoever was controlling Budweiser at that time, we're hugely in Star Trek, and the idea <laughs> was very. Um, that's it's it's because I remember I think relatively close after I remember hearing. So wait, that was that was a Budweiser factory. I need to visit some more Budweiser factories. That looked really nice. That's so funny. There was so that was another. Obviously, you know this. That was another place where purist fans got really pissed off. It's like you can't use a brewery for. It's like. If you didn't know it was a brewery, would you know? <laughs> it's funny because like, you're watching it in the context of the film. You know, it's an industrial, sure, uh, area, which makes sense. Engineering, again, with all of the love to all of the various tracks. And I love my engineering sets. You never see Scotty with any kind of dirt in his hands. And, you know, you never see uh, Torres like that. But things like that. This looks like when Scotty knocked off at the end of his shift, he was knackered and would go to bed. <laughs> with good reason and all of that the entire scale of that sequence that is all in camera and that's that is so unusual for science fiction and no matter how many complaints or jabs i got somebody wrote me an email asking for my headshot so he could use it on his dartboard because of that <laughs> which i thought was really funny so i sent it to him um anyway <laughs> that was great it's one of those things that it's like, to me, it's part of the magic of movies. You know, you either go on the ride or you don't. And if you see something that pops you out of it, then okay, that's not all right. But if you're not popped out of it, if you're on the ride, and then after the fact, you learn, wait a minute, that was a brewery, really? It's like, if you want to get pissed off, fine, but I got you. We got you. <laughs> you liked it for a moment when you were in it. So... I love that because I can only I can only imagine like I'm if we even go back like day one, is there this big conversation of okay, the budget is X, of which we've allocated Y to CGI. So, right, sorry, it's your job to make the rest of this fit in this part of the budget. But it's 2009, so there's so much CGI out there. How daunting is that? Or are you like, no, we're going to do as much as possible in camera because it's A, cheaper, B, looks better, possibly. Um, what's the, you know, what's the main impetus? Are you like, I want to do everything in camera or 
would you be like, okay, let's try and help some stuff out with CGI? I'm not sure if I phrased that question very well. You did. I get where you're coming from. I mean, every project starts with a budgetary template hmm. and the producers give it their best guess of what's going to cost what at the end of the day. Um, from my own perspective, to me, CG is just another tool in the toolkit. So when I'm designing something like this movie, obviously, if the set is we're in space and you know we're doing blah, 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 blah in space, that's going to be CG. And if we have to be on um, some very remote, far planet that looks unusual, chances are there's going to be a component of that that's going to have to be CG as well. But um, beyond those obvious calls, for me, it's all about the visual storytelling design process, how how we are going to get the best thing for the film. If if it turns out that the best thing for the film is to you know go to Hawaii, shoot the red planet in Hawaii, and then in post turn the whole thing red, great, let's try to do that. And we did attempt that. We went down that path hoping we could make it happen. At the end of the day, at that point, technology wasn't such that we could do it in an efficient way. So we did a combo of, you know, building a set, exterior set, and comping in CG to complete it. But there's never a point where I I have a firm view as I'm starting out that, oh, this has to be location, this has to be primarily CG or whatever. I, I keep my mind open so that we can come to the right decision. And always you have to be conscious of the money that's being spent and figure out how to balance it. But that's part of the job. It's mm -hmm. your, that's part of your responsibility to do that. And frankly, it's something that I enjoy doing because it's realistic. Nobody has all the money in the world. And no matter what the, even on the Marvel movie that I did that you'd think would have the biggest budget in the world. And it certainly had as much money as they could get their hands on to throw at it. You still need to fit something into a, an envelope and the the envelope is never big enough mm. to fit all the ambitions that everybody has for the project and you know the designers have to deal with that on a daily basis for better or for worse it's part of our responsibility um in terms of the narada which um is it's it's, it's such a like it's now such an iconic design um, is it? Oh yeah, that. it it is because it's so unique. It's oh. so unique. You know, there there isn't another ship like us, certainly in Trek, not at the moment anyway. Um, and it's so different because you know we we heard Romulan and you know we kind of had an idea of what Romulan would look like, and then this massive jellyfish looking thing comes out. What was so? What was the process there, and particularly the interior as well? Um, yeah. Because that is one of the most unique designs I think we've seen in a long time. Yeah, isn't that great? That was James Klein. He was my one of my other primary um, illustrator collaborators on that. And now that, that was his baby. We had so much fun developing that because it's so abstract. Mm -hmm. uh, I always start a project, a big design project like that with... Um, very carefully curated collection of reference imagery. Um, by the time I'm ready to start something like that with an illustrator, I've spent a month and a half or two months just assembling my own thoughts, creating a, a language or the foundation of a visual language for something, um, and 
you know, calling it down to its its essence. So when I bring in an illustrator to start talking about this, much like when JJ talks with me from a director's point of view, I've got fundamental aspects, fundamental qualities that I want to get into the design of this thing, both the story, the tone, the visual characteristics, the style, all of that is part of um, this little library of images, of imagery that I share with the illustrator. And none of them are of spaceships. There wasn't a single photograph of a fish or a shrimp or anything like that. But there were um, some really dynamic graphics, just like 2D graphics that were aggressive and jagged. And um, there were all sorts of different things that had the visual and storytelling qualities that we were looking for for that ship and we were talking about you know something as basic as okay what's scary anymore what are you frightened by and i mean how can you make something like a ship frightening what's left to do with that and we wrestled with that for quite a bit um and there was i can't remember what the order of it was there was one point where we were just talking about all the tropes of, okay, buzzsaws, razor blades, knives, blah, 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 blah. And um, he was, he started talking about um, something having kind of an organic component to it as well, that part of the ship's movement had an organic feel to it. And the combination of all of these things, James said, okay, I've got a couple ideas. Let me try a few. And he did. And in the first, I would say the first couple of passes of what this thing might be, he'd incorporated, um, these are the two details I remember most. He incorporated the organic nature of this weird ship. This is such a, I'm thinking of all the other ingredients that went into designing this, but I have to, to share with you later that has to do with the different natures of the different creatures in this story. Anyway, underwater organic stuff, things, creatures, plus I had a moment um, in the in the peak of our conversation of this, I was in the kitchen making dinner for myself with this big kitchen knife going, what is scary, what is scary, what is scary? Yeah, knives are scary. And I was like looking at the knife, but it's not really scary. And I was looking at the, this was like a big ass knife and I was looking yeah. at the the knife and goes, yeah. It's like, I thought, okay, how about this? Is this scary? And I took the point of the knife and started bringing it toward my eye and just kept getting as close as I could and thought, this is really stupid. Don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. I'm, I'm scared of that now. And there, James's underwater dream, that's where that ship exterior started. That is. That is because you're right. Like, please don't point knives at your eyes. But you're right; it is scary, you know. It's, and that they had to to enter that ship, you would have to go into this like world of razor blades poised to slice you. That's that was a, bit... a little scary. Because you, because you do get that there is that razor wire effect. You're kind of like if, as you said, if you kind of fall into the maw of this thing, you're not getting out again. And for the two ships that do go into the maw of that thing, that is absolutely true. Neither of them do get out again. Um, but uh, 
I remember it's it, it's funny as well because um uh are you are you familiar with um Eagle Moss that they 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 made all of the the models they made this enterprise uh the one model they they said from the beginning it's like we can't do it it's too complicated is the Narada they said yeah. they couldn't do a now Hot Wheels managed it but uh yes e- Eagle Moss did say that mm, I think that one's a bit beyond us and how was the Hot Wheels version did you like it it's grand. I think I prefer the one on screen. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different budgets. Um, but yeah, it it, it really worked. Um, before we even move on to Star Trek Into Darkness, once the film hit theatres, um, and, you know, at, at this point you're sitting there and you're waiting for the reaction, how did it feel then when all of the feedback, now whatever good, positive, or or, or anything else, how does that feel for you, knowing that you've got this iconic franchise, you've got a new take on it, and you've got Trekkies who, like myself, we very rarely have opinions on anything. Um, <laughs> how, how does that feel? Was there, you know, kind of like, oh, God, I want to switch off the internet for six weeks, or how was that? No, I you know, res- I don't get too involved in responses to the work itself. It's... Um... Once it's out there we've, and we've done our job, it's like, okay, chips are gonna fall wherever they do. And truth be told, I would say that half of the projects I do, I don't like the outcomes of them myself. Um, but I, my standards for what I do are pretty high and I, I often don't seem to meet them <laughs> for myself. <laughs> um, but it, for, the, for Star Trek, that first one, it, to me, it was a little bit of a miracle because at any point it could have gone off the rails and that story didn't have an ending for much of our shooting it took the last i would say the last third of our shooting process that jj and alex and bob figured out how they were going to resolve the story and they've been really tortured by it for a long time that that movie had so many different scripts um the the initial script that I read bears almost no resemblance to what was on the screen at the end of the day, which also is not terribly unusual. Um, but that it worked to the degree that it did, and it started to bring attention to the actors who were playing the key roles in there, that we all felt really proud of that. Um, in for for yourself and for departments like yours, you know, when you're and as you say, I know it's not unusual in Hollywood, but when you start a project and there's no finished script, you know, what's the sense there of like, do we figure it out as we go or in a macro way? Like, uh, but, you know, kind of I'm trying to once the cameras start rolling, do you still then find yourself? You no, know, we've we've got a like they've just now written a new ending that's set on X place. We need to build that or would that be more or less locked out would they then write the ending around the sets they already have if that makes sense no that's not the timeline of putting something like this together it takes from the moment i'm hired to the moment we wrap shooting typically on a project like this is over a year mm-hmm. um so we'll we'll start designing what's what are the first sets or environments locations that are going to go in front of the camera first and maybe I have three to six months lead time to develop it. I think I had five or six months on this Trek movie. 
because we were starting from scratch to figure all of this stuff out. But um, by the time the cam cameras first start rolling, those are just our first designs out of the gate. And we continue designing and building or grabbing locations, whatever, throughout the entire process of shooting. So when the ending isn't determined at the very start, we know it's going to be determined by the end, whenever that end may be, because it has to be. It's just part of the cycle. Um, and I, I, I'd say there's absolutely no stress involved in that whatsoever. Um, every Everyone gets a good night's sleep every single night of shooting. Um, there's no late days. It's part of the fun. I mean, that's the creative process and that's part of the excitement, especially when the collaborators are working well together and they trust each other. And that's that's one of the things I will always, always be grateful for in, in my years working with JJ and his teams. That's the amount of trust and respect we have for each other over the long haul and getting to know a collaborator in depth over a series of project after project is is really quite a gift and it's it's something i haven't replicated since um but it's unusual in the first place he and i had more than 10 years together collaborating until our schedules got out of sync and i treasure that time and it's it's fascinating that you describe it that way um, just the idea of, because you do, you go, oh, well, how come, you know, you X people aren't working together anymore? It's like, that's just the nature of the industry. You know, like, yeah. you know, this is filming at this point. However, I'm committed to this at this point. It's not like there's some great falling out or anything like that. Um, it's just this, this, this is how the, how it works. It's um, true. When you made the jump, jump to Star Wars, I was right in at a crucial stage of de developing Tomorrowland with Brad Bird, and there was not a chance in hell that I could leave Tomorrowland and, you know, just jump on JJ's team again um, without really messing up Brad and leaving a project that I was already deeply invested in. And, you know, that's that's the breaks. It, it, and, and you're so right. I mean, and, and I suppose in in some form or another, I think we can all understand you can't walk out of a job halfway through that's not finished and there's nothing, you know, in place just because, oh, I want to go do the other one. Now I say that I have left jobs before in the past, but for very different reasons, you know, um, I haven't yet worked on a Star Wars project with JJ, but I might, you know, I, I, I live in hope. Good. Uh, Great. I, I want to specifically say the first, I, I vividly remember the first trailer for Star Trek 09. It dropped obviously just before Cloverfield. Uh, none of us in the cinema had any idea that the trailer was coming. And I thought, to this day, I still think it's one of the best trailers because it takes a, it takes a few minutes to reveal what you're actually looking at. But that idea of building everything from the ground up, I have always loved that. And watching these welders putting together the Enterprise. That one, right. I, I love that. that Absolutely love that teaser. Always have. Um, I thought, what a what a great way to announce you know this is a this is a new vision this is a new project and yeah. yet you still have then you have that little like there's the the recognizable shape of the enterprise as well it's also a way of going trekkies don't worry it's okay we haven't mm -hmm. forgotten um and i just i just literally wanted to say what a bloody fantastic project that was as well cool um and then everyone goes away for a couple of years and you get a phone call and you're like hey we're gonna do a sequel and are you like oh god no jj not again uh, no, I didn't say that at all. 
<laughs> I was happy to, to do another one with them. And this one really didn't have a script. It had three pages um, of three acts. And once again, the last act isn't what wound up on screen. And um, I got hired to develop what was on those three pages and did that for a handful of months. Was there not uh, the word I'm looking at is easier, but also but just because you're right. You know what the bridge looks like. You know what the enterprise looks like this time around. So at least there's a base to kind of start from. Was that was there more of a okay? We can sit in the captain's chair and go right. We can now start designing what would become the vengeance. What would become the Klingon ships, for example? Uh, or is that wonderful feeling of mild panic always present? It's always present because even in something where it's a part two, where you have the style language set and you want to you know, develop it further, all of that stuff, but a lot of your initial questions are already answered. You can't just rest on that and coast, and especially with another adventure, you're gonna go into other brave new worlds. You've gotta deliver something fresh. So there's always the creative energy flowing around the what is this gonna be and what if, and how do we get there? Um, in terms then, so in that second one, um, particularly the particularly the Vengeance, because we have another Starfleet ship here, and the interiors of this ship, which were obviously it's it's built to be enormous, uh, almost cathedral like. Um, what I'm I'm curious, what was the kind of brief for something like that? It's like make something that looks like a starbase, but make it move. Ah, huh, funny. No, that was something that uh, it's not how it wound up in the show, obviously, but that was something that I wanted to take the base language of the enterprise that we knew, mm. but develop it in a whole different massive direction. So you learned something else entirely about Starfleet's engineering and technology and the possibilities of all of that and the, the design this one was also with James Klein that, that we evolved um, toward that end was a very abstract, really interesting piece of work that, again, because of budget, ultimately we weren't able to do. And as, as hard as we tried to compress it, to just boil it down to its most essential self, still keeping it distinctly different from the enterprise, it was still too expensive for what we had to work with. So at the end of the day, we wound up doing uh, a rehab on the Enterprise set itself, which of probably course. registers, yeah. Um, and I th because it was that, I think JJ didn't, in the final cut, we didn't get as many wide shots of the space as we might have, because I'm sure he was afraid we'd recognize it. It was just like the, the dark version of the bright white ship. But we did structurally alter it enough so that it had very different characteristics. And I think he could have gotten more visual mileage out of it than he chose to, but he was concentrating so much on the acting that at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. I do get that. And to be fair, there's some bloody good performances in that film. So, I mean, it it does show. It, it's it, it's funny as well about um, the... About, sort of reusing the idea of the Enterprise uh, bridge. If you look back to I me, mean, look back to Wrath of Khan, it's just the same set and they just switch the lights out, you know, and fair play. It looks, it looks great for it. So it, it does work. Um, and I have to say, I, 
I I loved the. It seemed. It still does seem quite revolutionary. The 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 dugout in the saucer section. That the bridge itself is its own kind of. Um, well, more like the command center we think of the bridge as. And one thing I can think that was only borrowed for Star Trek Discovery. How about that? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I presume you get royalty checks for that all the time? Certainly not. Mm. And you know what? Honestly, I haven't kept up with any of that. And when I recently saw a couple images of what's happening with the new series and how influenced it still is by these two movies, I was kind of amazed by that. I didn't expect it. That is, but, that is particularly in the first season, like absolutely no word of a joke. Plenty of lens flares. But you, but you could tell that they are going for at least an aesthetic uh, continuance. Um, yeah. And hey, work, worked for me. Again, Trekkies, Great. never have opinions. Um, but across the, across the two projects, you know, it being, it being the first Star Trek, um, what's... What what, are, what were your learnings then as someone who has worked on so many different types of genres? This is now sci-fi. This is starting. What, what did you come away with from that that perhaps you've now used going forward in your career as well? Oh, yeah, sure. Possibility of world building in any creative or storytelling direction that you want to go in an unhinged manner. <laughs> Just, <laughs> you know, as you start asking what if what if what if the the fewer restraints that you put on yourself the better and i i keep that principle in mind no matter what kind of material that i'm doing even you know something as as earthbound as as a um action spy thing international or otherwise just keep pushing the what if how can we not elevate this but how can we can expand this potentially into uh, creative storytelling methods that we're not so completely familiar with already. That's that's a big challenge in any genre, whether it's sci-fi, action, adventure, whatever. Everything, it seems like everything's been done and everything has been CG'd and done. And say, breathing life into a project is so important and it's one of the vital responsibilities for designers not just production designers but costume designers prop designers all of it um it is it it's it's one of the most like if you see any any cell of any moment of these films you know straight away you're looking at star trek or star trek into darkness so it completely carved its own its own aesthetic, it carved its own view and kind of feels, it feels kind of nice to come back to now every now and then. Because obviously, what are we now? Uh, we're a few years on since they've been released, I should say. Um, was there, because obviously, as we've talked about scheduling, um, so did you did you then pick up on, so I know you didn't work on Star Trek Beyond, but did you then, how, how did that feel to say, like, was it okay to kind of let my baby go and do whatever you want with it? Or was there a moment of, I hate every cell of this film and it's awful and I want you to fail? Oh, that's funny. Do you know the backstory of that? That's of that film in particular? um, I I know uh, bits and pieces, we shall say. So I was actually hired to do the third film. Um, 
that wasn't the title of it at that point. I don't think it was had a title. Bob Orsi, who was one of the writing team on the previous two, he was he wrote the script for what was going to be number three, mm. uh, and he was going to direct it too. Paramount tried to get other directors involved, but nobody who they wanted wanted to to take it on. Nobody wanted to follow in JJ's footsteps. And um, Bob said, "I'll give it a try." So. He did. We we went into prep on that. I think I worked five months on that, maybe something like that. Okay. And developed the designs for the entire movie. He had written a complete script. Um, we'd scouted it. I went that holiday season. I think I started in the spring or early summer and wound up finishing out the year scouting um, Seoul in South Korea. Mm-hmm as our primary Starfleet location. And by the time we came back from the holiday break, Paramount Marketing had decided they had no idea how to market this movie because it was super deep track story Mm. um, intensive. It was very tracky and um, very dramatic. And at that point at Paramount, there weren't a lot of people in the marketing division who liked the franchise anyway. Um, and so they wouldn't put their rubber stamp go ahead on that, which made all the um, big shots of Paramount go, what? What do you mean? And they took a look at the script and went, oh, if you can't market this, we can't release this. And they fired Bob. They jettisoned the script. And um, they didn't change the prep schedule, however. They still demanded having a movie to release on the same date because they were going to lose their rights to have uh, Star Trek features if they didn't make a certain date at that point. So what happened was the line producer stayed on, new director came in, new team got involved, They um, and they put together very quickly this story. I think um, Simon Pegg, mm, yeah. actor, I think he was one of the writers of the script, and that's that's what turned into the movie that was released, Star Trek Beyond. I actually didn't know, Andy, in my research, I'm surprised I didn't come across that. Um, that is, so I shall amend my notes. So sorry, you did absolutely work on all three of those Star Trek films. My my apologies. Um, yeah, I've got the hook. What's it's I, every once in a while, somebody who's interested wants to see what what that script was and what the design looked like. And I have to say, it's one of the designs that I'm so sorry we weren't able to bring to the screen because it was good and it was the next step in visual storytelling from the previous two tracks that I had done. And in fact, in, in the number three, I was finally able to do the big ship that I couldn't do for number two. Yeah. Um, there in the way that I wanted it to be manifested. But the bigger question of that, it's like you look at whether it's Star Trek movies or science science fiction in general of these last couple of decades everybody involved is looking at the same things online every new technological development we're all seeing it at the same time every great new series of photographs or whatever's going on architecture or you know whatever the world news is we all ingest it and what i've seen over and over again is when we're doing the same kinds of tentpole movies we're taking the same information interpreting it in the way that we feel is appropriate for the story that we're telling and there's this sameness this visual storytelling sameness that pervades the films 
that we've been doing. And I think that's only going to be magnified like crazy with AI being a large part of the conceptualization process now. It's you're going to recognize all of that just as easily as you can recognize all of the other sameness that we've been seeing. That's actually that that's actually a really good thing that I'd love to pick up on because as a designer, um, now I know I, I've heard various people's opinions on this. So, what is your opinion on the rise of AI in terms of designing? It's a great tool. It's really handy, and it streamlines. Just from my own perspective, it streamlines my initial streamlines my initial process tremendously. I can create a body of imagery to start a conversation with a director all on my own very quickly. If I if I want to adjust things in a way that I'm not getting on my own in AI, then I can bring on an illustrator as opposed to six illustrators and start refining it. But when it comes to generating the actual um, concept illustrations that the construction drawings will be based on or that the visual effects uh, work is going to be based on, then I will need illustrators at that point in the process to get down to the specifics that you can't just make AI do. There's there's too much inherent randomness to that to be able to surgically uh, detail and create in the way that we need to for film work. That's really because I, I, I know there's obviously there's a lot there, there's many people out there who are like oh ai is going to be taking jobs uh, i don't think it's quite there yet but um i think you know it's it is a tool like anything else um and i mean i'm not afraid of hammers and right. it's exactly that and our industry is an industry of change period it is always changing and the workflow is always changing and morphing and it will continue to do so i think that's you know, it's a plus, it's got some minuses attached to it, but it's what keeps the business so dynamic and alive. Constant change. Oh, I like it. And there's something very, there's something very Star Trek about that constant change. <laughs> true enough. Very yeah. true. Well, um, what I will do now is I'm going to come up to the last question. You've been very generous at your time, so thank you very much. So I'm going to ask you a final question that we ask of every guest. Very simple question. No thought needed. Um... Scott, what does Star Trek mean to you? Oh, no thought needed. A good ride. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's that's you know, what, yeah. yeah. Well, well done. A lot of people tie themselves up in knots over that one. I'm, I'm very <laughs> impressed. Uh, Thanks so much. Um, that is brilliant. Look, Scott, thank you so much for your time this evening. Uh, very quickly, where can people reach out, talk to you, discover more about your work? Where's the best place to to find you? Oh, it's easy. Um, I'm easily available uh, via my website, which is scottchambliss.com. All the work's there. And if you want to get in touch, anybody can have my email address. It's very simple, scottchambliss at mac.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'd, I'd look forward to hearing the, you know, thousands and thousands of email you're about to get. <laughs> oh, I'd love to think that we had that audience. Um, you're a gentleman. Thank you very much. Uh, to everyone who's been listening and watching along, thank you very much as well. We will, of course, be back next week with another episode of The War Room. You have been awesome. You are wonderful. Make sure that you live long and prosper and look after yourselves. <laughs> as well. Thanks so much.